So Yager comes pouncing in the locker room. He's butt naked. And my first thought was, wow, that guy is um, well endowed, let's just say. <laughs> it's the H-Dog Pod with your host, Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Hey, hey, welcome to episode 66, the Mario Lemieux edition of the podcast. Really, could I have selected anybody else? He was an absolute weapon on the ice, recording the eight the most points in NHL history, and that's with him missing three seasons because he had Hodgkin's lymphoma. He returned in 2000, and all he did was record 76 points in 43 games. What a heroic act that is for sure, and literally everybody loved him. He won two Stanley Cups as a player in 1991 and 92, and three as an owner with the Penguins, six Art Ross trophies, and two Conn Smythe trophies, along with a slew of other awards. There absolutely could be nobody else I can mention for this special episode, as Lemieux earned the nickname Super Mario, which is just the coolest thing ever, because those games are amazing. By the way, Mario 2 for Super Nintendo is often considered awful, but try it again. I promise it's actually really, really great. My next guest is a fan of the awful Pittsburgh Steelers, and he's worked in media for many years, so perhaps he has a story about Mario Lemieux, seeing as how he played in Pittsburgh. So without further ado, let's get cracking. Okay, now welcome on Tony Ambrosio. He's a veteran of sports broadcasting, having worked in the industry for little years. He's covered World Series, NHL playoffs, Grey Cups, tennis and golf events, been a reporter, hosted his own show, Sports Ticker, and teaches sports broadcasting. Welcome to the H-Dog Pod, Tony. What a pleasure it is to be on with you, Michael. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here and uh, appreciate it. I'm uh, very interested uh, to delve into your career because uh, I remember years ago uh, watching you on um, Sportsnet as, as a reporter. And I always thought you were outstanding at, at what you do. So I'm uh, excited. I'm glad I work with you now and I'm excited to uh, talk to you today. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, uh, I enjoy working with you and so many other talented people at TSN. It's uh, really been an eye opener for me see the level of talent at TSN behind and in front of the camera. It's been great. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, take us back to where it all started for young Tony Ambrosio in the broadcasting <laughs> field. Uh, you know, uh, yonder year. What? Uh, how did it all start for you? And how did you know you wanted to become a, a sports broadcaster? So how boring is this? I was born in London, grew up in London. And the old phrase is, when I was two days old, I knew I wanted to be a play-by-play or a sports broadcaster. <laughs> I was That's just good. fascinated with it. I, I would... I would watch the games on TV, do the play-by-play myself and turn the volume down, the type of things that people do. Um, and then, you know, as I got older, I just, I, I kind of took the philosophy, Mike, you got one life, mm-hmm. so you might as well live it to the best of your abilities and you might as well go for it. And I know it sounds kind of cheesy, but that was kind of what I thought. I thought I'm going to try it. If it doesn't work, I'm not going to look back and say, I wish I tried because I did. So I got into Fanshawe College and broadcast journalism a very demanding two-year broadcasting journalism course. We had 30 people that started out. Eight of us graduated. It was that difficult. I got a job in radio in Owen Sound. And while I was there, I did a lot of news and news reporting, but also did a sports talk show on the radio. From there, I went to Queens Park because I wanted to get out of broadcasting. While there at Queens Park, I went to the score just Mm -hmm. for a visit, Mm -hmm. small world. The person that was in charge of the score had heard me on the radio station in Owen Sound because he had a cottage at Sobble Beach. So right away there was a connection. I got hired at the score at first weekends, and then I got full-time, left Queens Park, and I've been media ever since for about 30 consecutive years. But about It feels like 80 years in total, but about uh, 
30 some odd years in, in broadcasting and media in some way, shape or form. 30 plus years. Yeah, I'm only 35. So I, I was actually flabbergasted recently. I, I discovered your age. I was like, no way. I would have thought like probably honestly 10 years younger. So I couldn't believe that. Uh, yeah, 30 odd years in broadcasting. Eh? That's uh, that's an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, very lucky, very thankful. And I always tell this to everybody, especially the uh, the students I teach. It's not so much the work you've done. It's the people that you've met, right. whether they're athletes broadcasters or whatever it's amazing the amazing people i've got to work with and i've gotten to meet them uh, that's what i think stands out for me in my 30 plus years of being involved in this business and sue so, so who are some of those uh, athletes that you have met that you've interviewed and uh you know been able to uh, been able to talk to yeah like it's funny so when i was in owen sound on my first job out of college i was a cocky young arrogant 22 23 year old so I'm doing a radio sports talk show. And at that time, we're talking early 90s, I wanted to get Jean Beliveau on. I never watched Jean Beliveau play, but all the quote-unquote old-timers talked about him like he was the king of hockey, a legend, a class act. So I got Jean Beliveau on my hour-long radio show. How did you, how did you do that? Stood, well, see, in those days, a lot of calls, um, finding his agent, calling the team, he was an alumni, so you just make calls. And when you're in your early 20s, Mike, you're fearless, right? Mm. I want to get this guy. I want to do whatever it takes to get this guy. Now you can use email, Instagram, Twitter, whatever, to find someone. So I somehow got John Beliveau. He came on my radio show, and he was on for almost an hour. And he was unbelievably classy. And the calls that we got and the people were so grateful to talk to him, it was one of those most amazing hours for me. So that's one that sticks out. I also got Danny Gallivan. Now, you're probably too young to remember, but he was the play-by-play voice for the Canadians when I was a young kid in the 70s. And he was unbelievably gracious and had such wonderful stories about where he started and about his broadcasting career. So that was a big highlight for me. Um, like, they're The problem with that question you asked, Mike, is that I've been so darn lucky. <laughs> I've talked to so many people, I can't narrow it down to just a couple. I think about Wayne Gretzky. I was at the score and there was a charity golf tournament and we knew he would be there. And for whatever reason, no other media was there. Hmm. So here I am, a young guy, kind of nervous about to interview Wayne Gretzky, waiting for him. He approached me to say, you want to do this now? Like he didn't have to do that. He could have golfed. I would have waited. We would have got him after, but he did it before. And I always thought, man, that's unbelievable. But probably my favorite interview story. And I kind of texted you this the other day was Dan Marino. So let me just set the plot up, okay? <laughs> that sounds uh, so I grew up, it sounds really so this good. Is, this is, this, here we go. So I grew up in London, Ontario. I grew up a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Well, I, I started to break your heart. While a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, Dan Marino in the early 80s was a star quarterback at the University of Pitt. Mm-hmm. At that time, Terry Bradshaw's career is just about to be over. So I'm hoping, I'm praying the Steelers draft him in the first round. Well, what do they do? They draft a defensive lineman because there had been these rumors of drug abuse by Marino. So they draft a defensive lineman by the name of Gabe Rivera, Senior Smoke. And Senior Smoke played six NFL games before he was paralyzed in a drunk driving car accident. So instead of getting Dan Marino, my idol, they got Gabe Rivera. But that's, that's another story. So Marino, of course, goes on to be drafted by Miami. Wonderful career, yada, yada, yada. 
So I'm at the score. And my boss says, hey, Dan Marino's at a charity golf slash charity poker tournament in Niagara Falls. Do you want to go interview him? I said, are you kidding me? That's my guy. Yeah. So my cameraman and I, we, we, we get to go to Niagara Falls. And I am jacked. I am so pumped to talk to my idol. So we get to Niagara Falls. He's finished golfing. But then he had to go play this charity poker. So I said, okay, we'll wait. No big deal. I'm talking to his PR people, and we're waiting. An hour becomes an hour and a half, becomes two, becomes three. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, we're not going to get this. Finally, he's he's out of money at the poker tournament. He leaves. He's coming towards kind of leaving the building. And I kind of step in front of him and say, Mr. And before I could say anything, he says, oh, no, another bleeping interview. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and my heart sinks. This is my idol right? basically telling me to go away. And I said, but Mr. Marino, we, we've waited all these hours. You promised our network you'd do it. Please, please, please. So he does it. Reluctantly, he does the interview. And it was okay, but it wasn't great. As soon as we're done, he rips off the microphone and is about to leave. And I say, well, wait, but, but wait a second, Dan, you can't leave. He goes, what do you mean? You promised us that you would do a video message to Damon Allen for the Argonauts. So the score had a deal with the Argonauts where Dan was going to congratulate Damon Allen for his passing record. At that time, Allen set a record for most passing yards in North American professional football. Mm -hmm. That's how the Argos were kind of um, selling it. So, (laughs) So he rolls his eyes, puts the mic back on looks in the camera and says, hey, Damon, it's it's Dan Marino. Congratulations on all your great success in Canada. And as he says Canada, he kind of rolls his eyes as if it's not a big deal, rips off the mic and walks away. And I couldn't stop laughing, Mike. (laughs) For my hour and a half trip home with my cameraman, I laughed all the way, thinking that my idol, Dan Marino, (laughs) gave me a moment in time I will never forget. <laughs> that's that's amazing. Now, oh man! No, the, the the best part of the story is several years later, we had the NFL Buffalo series at Rogers Center, and one year it was going to be Miami and Buffalo. To promote that game, they brought Jim Kelly and Dan Marino together. So, guess who got to do that interview? <laughs> I think for Sportsnet, me. So I go to this interview thinking this is going to be a disaster. Marino's going to be awful. He's a sour, bitter dude. I went in there all nervous and all thinking this is going to be awful. He and Jim Kelly were dynamite. Just tremendous. Great stories. Great ribbing of each other. Like that. So to me, my, my opinion of Dan Marino did a 180 after that because I thought, okay, I caught him on a bad day. He was tired. A lot was going on. But that's, uh, that's, that's my Dan Marino story. My takeaway from that probably was Dan Marino probably didn't uh, play so well in the charity poker game, and that's I why I think he you're right. Upset, you know? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a pretty fair assumption for sure. Uh, I do remember he looked pretty red because he'd been in the sun all day golfing, and then and then the uh, poker tournament. It was a long day for sure, <laughs> and I just think I caught him at the wrong time. <laughs> that's fine. Have, do you have any other stories of uh, you know? They always say you know never meet your idols, so to speak. Obviously, you, t- you said that he was your idol, but you don't have to, of course, name names, or you can name names. Has there ever been an athlete yeah. that you're like so excited to interview and then you're like, oh, this guy or this woman was just an absolute letdown? You know what? It's funny. I've been lucky. Not really. 
Um, Daryl Sutter was one of my favorites too, and he was he wasn't you know outgoing and, and really vivacious and, and excitable, but he was he was he was pleasant. He was great to deal with. Um, you know, Crosby, Gretzky, McDavid, all were great. So when I was in radio, we had Bobby Hall come on to do an interview. Now, I didn't really know much about Bobby Hall, but at the time, he had a bit of a drinking issue. He liked to drink, and he could be a difficult interview. So he came to our radio station in Sam to promote some kind of, I think, a golf tournament. And I was pacing. I was nervous I was going to get drunk Bobby Hall. Thankfully, he was awesome. He was tremendous. But as far as other stories like Dan Marino, not really. I've been really, really lucky. And you know what? You know that you know. I, right. I go with the old adage, right? Just treat people with respect, and they usually re- treat you with respect in turn. Absolutely, for sure. I, I was doing uh, some research, aka reading your website uh, before <laughs> talking to you, and I saw Gordy Howe as well. You uh, uh, had a discussion with him. Yeah. So many years ago in Owen Sound, we were holding a charity golf tournament. Lots of golf to raise money. It. Yeah, I, I can't remember what the, what the event was. It might have been kids. And so we tried to get as many celebrities as we could. Now, at that time, I was doing a sports talk show, so I had a bit of a Rolodex. So we were able to get the skier, Ken Reed, you know, hockey players from the area, hockey players in the NHL. And I thought, let's try Gordy Howe. And I, again, you're fearless, man. There's just nothing that's going to stop you. What's the worst they can say? No. Okay. So we, we got Gordy Howe's representative. And the only way they would do it is if we agreed that he could sell one of his books and he would get the proceeds from it, not the charity. Because usually some of these athletes want like an appearance fee. So we got Gordy Howe uh, to do that. And before that, he came on our radio show. He was great. Now, he was, you know, he was older. His memory may not have been as sharp, but still a great storyteller. And he was great when he came to the tournament. Just fantastic with everybody. The only thing was he kept pushing his book, trying to sell his book. So it kind of made for a bit of an uncomfortable situation at times. But uh, all in all, he, he was very good. That's awesome. Uh, you have any uh, sort of uh, the craziest stories or things you had to, that you had to cover that were just absolutely wild? So the, it's funny because there's so many. And every day I kind of change my mind when I think of my favorite. But one of my favorites was the 2011 World Series. So that was Texas and St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And if you remember, game six, Texas was up two in the ninth, about to clinch their first World Series. I think they were a strike away from winning the World Series, if, if I, I'm not mistaken. I was going to say, they were, I think they were a strike away twice, I think. <sighs> oh, man. So, in, so here we are in the bottom of the ninth, getting ready to go on the field for interviews. We're kind of un, under the bowels of Bush Stadium, new Bush Stadium. There's, there's Chris Berman. There's a bunch of other reporters. It's pretty cool. We're watching the game on a small 12-inch TV monitor. So... As we're waiting in the bowels of Bush, a large contingent of Texas Rangers family walked by us to go to the locker room to get ready to celebrate with their husbands, wives, husbands, brothers, whatever. And they were all so happy. And it was a large contingent of family and friends. Then when St. Louis tied it in the ninth, that large contingent went from happy to devastated and went walked across us the other way to go back away from the locker room. <laughs> then in the 10th, I think it was the 10th, Texas scored two more, and the family comes walking by us again, ready to celebrate. The Cardinals tie it in the bottom of the 10th. All the family walked the other way. And then, of course, the Cardinals won it, forced the game seven. 
and won the World Series. <laughs> and all I can remember was here I am at the World Series, but I'm watching the game on a 12-inch television monitor, and all these people have gone from a, a gamut of emotions from highs high to lowest of lows, and I'm missing the ball game watching on a 12-inch <laughs> monitor. That's what I kept thinking about during that Game 6 situation. It was really surreal to see the family and friends and what they were going through. So you can imagine what the players are going through. Oh, man, I can only imagine. Absolutely. Uh, obviously, slightly different, but uh, crazy Jose Bautista, you know, a home run against the Rangers uh, a few years ago in the playoffs. I was watching with three other guys at work, and, you know, we have awesome, amazing television, huge TVs there. And obviously HD, and we were all huddled around this like same. It couldn't have been more much bigger than that TV as well. Watching that, and obviously we go crazy when he hits the home run. And it was like four of us, and it was like, and it was obviously SD as well. It's like it's so so funny for some reason. We just had this one TV that we just couldn't. Uh, we were just obviously so glued to that game, and uh, what an right. amazing game that uh, man. Those Jays teams were. They were so fun. It's hopefully they can actually get to that levels again, but because that was just awesome to have two straight chances in the ALCS. Well, you know, it's, it's funny, Mike, because I'm so much older than you. I remember the 80s Blue Jays, always close, won the division titles a couple of times, but couldn't get past the Oakland A's, who were a juggernaut at that time in the playoffs. And I remember in 87 when they lost in painstaking fashion, like they blew that lead against the Tigers. They were up three with four games to go. Just awful. Tony Fernandez got hurt. It was just a sickening way to lose. And I remember thinking at that time in 87, this Jays team will never get over the hump. And then a few years later, they made the big trade to acquire Alomar and Carter, saying goodbye to Fernandez and, and Fred McGriff. But those changes kind of catapulted the new Blue Jays to success to back-to-back World Series in 92 and 93. And, and, and I say this because in a way, a small way, it reminds me of what the Toronto Maple Leafs are going through. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know it's different because they've never even won a playoff round. But there are some similarities, I find, some, to those Blue Jays of the late 80s and before they turned it around in the early 90s. So to Maple Leafs fans, I know you're devastated. I know what's upsetting. Keep the faith. Yeah, it so... happened for the Red Sox. It happened for the Cubs. Keep the faith. That's very true. Yeah, the, uh, <clears throat> even the White Sox. Uh, it's always funny to me how they, they're they're the uh, ugly ugly stepchild for some reason that they hadn't won in a World Series in forever. But for some reason, uh, yeah. they're just, just sort of forgotten for some reason by people on that one. But you know what I find? I find the cities like Chicago, L.A., and New York that have two professional sports teams. There's always one hmm. that really takes a backseat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whether it's fair to the Mets, the White Sox, or the Angels, I don't know. You know, but they do. They take the back seat for sure. Uh, definitely. And yeah, you mentioned the Maple Leafs and, and the collapse. They were up three games to one against, of course, against the Canadians and lost the last three to lose again in probably yeah. the most painstaking way, only because they were up 3 1 this time, unlike the other series where they, you know, might have been up 3 2 or they're down 3 1 to Boston in 2013. Uh, yeah, where do the Leafs go from here? Because there is, uh, it's not a lot of easy answers. It must be, well, will be really difficult for management to, uh, you know, get, get through this off season. Yeah. I think what really hampers or hinders the Maple Leafs is the salary cap. I think you go into the decisions to sign Marner and Matthews and Tavares and Nylander in your head, thinking the salary cap will go up four or 5% every year. Well, that's not going to happen. So instead of an 88 or $89 million salary cap, it's down to 81 again. So, 
A, that puts Toronto right behind the eight ball immediately. B, I guess the question is, do you really believe in this core four, as they call our call? Or do you think you have to trade one to get other pieces? If you trade a Mitch Marner, Mike, you're not getting, you know, fair value. You're going to get 75 cents on the dollar, as right. Pierre Lebrun was saying the other day. Definitely. Okay, so if that's the case, are you willing to make that move? B, what's easier to find, Mike? A top five player or a third liner or a fourth liner? I think the answer is pretty easy. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier to find your third line grinders and your fourth liners. So I think the Maple Leafs, whether they want to admit it or not, feel, feel they have no choice but to stick with the core four and hope that your bottom six and your bottom three defensemen and maybe your backup goalie will be just good enough to get you over the hump if they're called upon. But you're going to rely on these four guys going forward. And we saw what happened this year. With one of your four guys gets hurt, mm. it impacts everything. Everything. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, to me, the obvious answer would be you got to trade a William Nylander because the market's probably high, and you might be able to get something, maybe even two key pieces in return. But I get the feeling that Dubas and Shanahan are really stubborn and really believe their philosophy is the best way to go. Well, I tell you what frustrates me, though. It's not so much a Maple Leafs thing. Is that the NHL is the only sport, Mike, where the rules, if you will, the play, the pace of play, the way the game is played, radically alters from the regular season to the playoffs. And a lot of it has to do with officiating. Mm -hmm. A lot of it. Mm -hmm. A lot of some of it has to do, obviously, with how hard the guys play and the systems and the defense first mentality in the playoffs and the grind. But it's really officiating to me dictates that you can play that grinding style. Because the officials won't call what they should call as penalties that they would call in the regular season. Like, to me, the most startling stat of the first round, Mike, Connor McDavid drew zero penalties. Jeez. You're telling me the greatest player in the world, the fastest player, couldn't draw one penalty in four games? That's crazy. Come I on. I didn't even realize that. Seriously. Actually, yeah. Give me a break. So... That's what frustrates me. So so I admire Dubas and Shanahan for their, what appears to be a stubborn approach to this. But I do believe that if we're back to square one a year from now, they are really going to have no choice but to make an, a radically different type of lineup and maybe trading one of those core four. It definitely remind me a lot of, uh, now the Capitals didn't really, if memory serves me right, they didn't have four you know, forward, right. but of course, obviously they had Ovechkin and, and Backstrom and uh, those, and Semin, I guess, would have been as well part of that for a while. Uh, yeah. I guess Kuznetsov as well. But, uh, you know, every single year they could barely even get even to the second round and they couldn't even get to the third round ever until they finally yeah. did get, get, you know, get through it and they finally won the cup. But I remember several people being like, oh, you got to trade Ovechkin. You got to trade him. Like, you know, yeah. he, he used yep. the constant and all this. And then eventually they finally dig it over that hump. So... It's, it's, it's tempting it's, to get rid of these guys, especially Marner, because he was really bad the last three playoffs, actually. But uh, yeah. it's, it's yeah, you're, you're right. You can't, you basically, you're stuck with these guys, and you just hope that somehow, somebody, he has played well in the playoffs before, Marner. His first couple of playoffs, he was pretty good. So it's just weird yeah. how, how bad he's been the last three I, playoffs. I just think there's something in his head, and he's squeezing the stick. But just, just on Ovechkin, it's interesting, because I mentioned this to Gino yesterday about Ovechkin and Baxter. He said, the thing was, they actually won some first rounds. And he's right, they did. 
Andrew. The thing that amazes me about the Ovechkin Backstrom tandem is before winning the Stanley Cup, they never got to the third round, mm-hmm. a conference final. So they went, you know, eliminated first round or eliminated in the second round and then won a Stanley Cup. Like it, it took a lot of years, like you say, to finally get there. But they once they got there, bounces went their way. Remember the year they won the Cup, Mike. They got lucky to beat Columbus in the first round. Yeah, they lost the first the two games, The right? Jackets were up 2 nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were a crossbar away from going up 3 nothing. Mm-hmm. So you get over that hurdle. They finally beat Pittsburgh, and they did it on a, on a Kuznetsov overtime game winner. So it, it, But it's not easy. And that's the other thing, too. I get the angst with the Leafs fans. I get it. It's just not easy. to. Like it, I think people think it's easy because they see Tom Brady in the Super Bowl every year, it seems. Mm-hmm. But it's not easy no. to win a title. Actually, a very good comparable uh, to the Leafs would also be from the same sport. The Ottawa Senators of the early 2000s, who were, yes, would always lose to the Leafs. So. You know, they, they would always lose. That was it three or four times they lost to them. Yeah. And then they never and won you the cup, make but the they argument, went to the final, right? Uh, yeah, the that's right. No seven. But you could make the argument the Sens were the better team each year against Toronto, but couldn't get over the hump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. So, it, like I say, it's just not easy. And, and, I, and I, I understand the difficult decisions Kyle and, Sh- and Shannon had have to get through and get over. But, uh, yeah, that's that's a long road for those guys to haul. No, no question about that. Uh, another player took a little while to win a Stanley Cup. And then, they, then he, of course, he won, too. The uh, the episode title episode sixty six Mario Lemieux uh, he can't <laughs> yes. we can't not talk about him because he's obviously uh, was an amazing player I love him so much uh, do you have any stories did you ever have to cover him at all or yeah just just a little bit it, it's so it's funny so I I worked as I mentioned my first job in Owen Sound and in Owen Sound the hockey team the OHL team hired an assistant coach who was from Pittsburgh so Len Semplitz and I have become really good friends over the years because I love the Steelers and I love Pittsburgh. And I would go visit Len every year. Well, one of my first visits to Pittsburgh, Len has connections to the Penguins. So I got free tickets to the and I got to go to a morning skate. So I was was working in the media, but I went as a fan of the morning skate. And it was cool. There was Mario. Like I was I was in my early and I was Star Trek struck as an you know in my early 20s seeing Mario Lemieux in front of me. And then I'm in the locker room. There's Rick Talkett talking to guys and you know, it was a pretty veteran, cool team. And in comes a young 19-year-old Yarmer Yager. So Yager comes pouncing in the locker room. He's butt naked. And my first thought was, wow, that guy is um, well-endowed, let's just say. <laughs> so he comes he comes streaming by. And I'm going, holy shnikes, oh. that guy's got a big whatever. And, uh, yeah, so that was Oh, I first met Yager. Big, big nose, right? That's Mario what you're referring to, right? <laughs> Pardon me? A big nose. That's what you were referring to, right? That's exactly. Yes, a huge nose. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So it was uh, it was quite a memorable experience for sure. <laughs> oh, man, that's amazing. Uh, well, that, was, oh. that sort of dovetails a little bit to what I was going to then say, uh, which was, you know, did you ever have any embarrassing moments in your career, or, you know, or, or things where you're like, ah, crap, I wish I could do that one over? Yeah, well, listen, you have a lot of them. Um, that's funny. So when I did this radio show in Owen Sound, it was a small station, so you do local things. And I got this young lady to come on to talk about, I think she was in a ringette, and it was like her ringette association. Well, I got to tell you, H-Town, she was so nervous she wouldn't speak. So I would ask her a question, and she would just nod her head yes or no. And I said to her, uh, listen, ma'am, this is a radio show. I need you to speak. 
I got 20 minutes booked with you. This isn't going to go very well. So that was one of the more infuriating and frustrating radio interviews I've done. Was that for the sports uh, ticker one, show? Yeah, yeah. Up, up in Owen Sound. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> and then one time when I was at the score, we were doing, it was draft night. So before the draft, we had a set up an interview with Sam Mitchell. So Sam was the coach. This was the last thing Sam wanted to do. He did not want to do it. And I, I got to be honest with you. I'm still kind of bitter at the producer I was working with this day that put me in this really tough position. So we finally get Sam to come alive with us to do a pre to do an interview ahead of the draft. As you know, Mike, I'm five foot six on a good day. Sam Mitchell is what? Six, nine, six, 10, six, 11. He's a huge dude. So we had set it up there. I would stand up on a small little step to help narrow the gap of the height difference. So we're set to do this. Sam wants nothing to do with this. And instead of stepping down, he stepped up. <laughs> so, Six nine went to seven four, and I'm ticked. But we do the live interview. I know it looks bad. He gave terrible answers. It was awful. So we do the interview, and I was I was really really angry, like I was I was some fired up. So the interview was finished, but the camera is still rolling back to the station. So again, we're off the air by the camera, but the window was still open, mm -hmm. and I'm pacing back and forth beside the camera. And I'm just, I'm so pissed. I don't think I, I swore, but I was so pissed off. So the next day, my boss says, you know, Tony, a lot of people at the station saw how mad you were with that Sam Mitchell interview. And I said, good. That, you know, the producer screwed me over. Mm -hmm. He knew Sam didn't want to do it. Should have got me somebody else. So that was the one time where I was both embarrassed and really angry about an interview that I had done. That went live, and there wasn't much more you can do about it. And uh, it, every time I see Sam Mitchell at the station, I kind of roll my eyes because I'm sure he doesn't remember it. <laughs> but it's something that still bugs me to this day. Oh, yeah, that's uh, that's rattling. Well, speaking of uh, – uh, it was definitely with uh, someone who was decidedly less in, uh, important than Sam Mitchell, but and, and speaking of embarrassing moments, and uh, when I was in college at Niagara College, I had to do a uh, an interview for Inside Niagara – and uh, it was like a 30-minute interview, and it was supposed to be uh, with someone. Uh, it was about wine. We went to the Henry of Pelham wine tour. The, the, these guys were awesome. But the actual interview was like the next day. But the producer didn't book those guys, the, the oh, tour no. guides, because she, she waited too long to get them or some of that. So they couldn't actually do oh, the interview. Oh, no. So she, she tried to get all these different people to do the interview. They all said no, blah, blah, blah. So I have this 30-minute interview. And I think I honestly must have written out like 50 questions because I was just, you know, I want to nail it. I had never done really any broadcasting on air at that point. It was, a, you know, it was obviously an important deal. So who does she sure. get for this interview? She gets her uncle who just happens to like wine. That's it. He had oh no qualifications God. to talk about why it was just her. Uncle. Stop. And, and just as you were saying about that, it just reminded me of that when you were saying the interview that you had with that woman and she had, you know, yes or no, or wasn't saying anything on the air. <laughs> this guy, same exact thing. He wouldn't give any answers to anything at all. And he was just like, yes, no. And I'm like, Oh my God. So I'm like sweating. And then there's people in the background behind the cameras. They had, they, you know, they've written questions out for me. Cause I, I burned through like 50 questions and they weren't yes or no questions oh my in like God. 10 minutes, maybe. <laughs> And finally, I'm like, okay, uh, here's a question that maybe he'll have something to say about. I go, oh, do you have any stories about wine or, or something along those lines? Do you have any, like, you know, uh, cr you know, crazy th things that or something like that? 
you know, it wasn't a yes or no question. He goes, no, not really. I'm like, oh, oh my God. I would oh, love to watch life. that again. It would be so fun. I have it somewhere on a VHS. It'd be so fun. It'd be so cringeworthy. Somehow I got through it. I don't know how, yeah. but it was like, oh my God. But it, it was a good life lesson, I guess, in terms of yeah. you know, not every interview is yeah. going to be perfect like this one, of course. And that's, and, and, you know, and that's what you realize for sure, especially when they're live. <laughs> <laughs> right when they're live they're never perfect that's for sure oh man yeah no that's funny. It, it's funny because you know as much as it obviously wasn't good at the time it's a great story now but yeah this i remember just being man i just wish i could you know crawl into the into the into the ground during that interview it was just so painful <laughs> yeah, a lot of people have been there mike a lot of people have been there my man <laughs> so, so a lot good. of people well this has been uh, nowhere near that of course this has been a fantastic uh you mentioned the pittsburgh steelers earlier and of course I would have to. I couldn't uh, let you go without discussing <laughs> the biggest sham of a Super Bowl of all time: the Seahawks oh, Steelers. Boy, Super Bowl. Yes, exactly. The Seahawks uh, Super Bowl against the Steelers in 2006, which the referees hand uh, hand wrapped gifted the Super Bowl to Pittsburgh. How do you respond to people who know the truth and say the Steelers were gifted that? Super know Bowl? the truth? Oh, come on, H Town. Okay, so here's what I'd say. I'd say yes, there were questionable officiating calls. Questionable officiating calls. I understand the Seahawks' frustration, <laughs> but here's a thought: Don't let Antoine Randall L throw a touchdown pass to Heinz Ward. Don't let Willie. Don't Parker. let Willie Parker run 75 yards, pretty much untouched, for a touchdown. Yep. Like to me, those are two plays that you I understand. I understand the frustration with the officiating. I get it. I, but you I, stop I, those two for sure, and no, it's a different no, ball game. No question. Now, no I, question. I will say, as a Steelers fan, that was the one Super Bowl victory where I didn't feel good about it. Yes, I did. I felt like oh, we got we got we got a lot of more break than we should have, and I felt bad because you know there's some people that I know who are Seahawks fans really felt bad for them. So I will say, even to this day, what was it, 12, 11, 12 years ago? It's still I do still understand the pain the Seahawks fans have. But if I'm a Seahawks fan, I think I'm more bitter about losing a chance to win back to back. I am about that Super Bowl. I, I'm personally not because the game against uh, the Patriots was an amazing game. Went back and forth. You know, uh, Seattle somehow True. was up ten points in the fourth, despite all their like you know, Legion of Boom guys. They all had like torn labrums in their shoulder. They they had no business even playing that game. Obviously, it's a heartbreaking way to lose right at the end. Uh, you know, clearly. But no, to me, uh, I guess it was also because Seattle didn't make the Super Bowl again after that sham of a, of a game, which I agree with. There's things, Seattle's special teams in that uh, Super Bowl against Pittsburgh were awful. Two missed yeah, field goals, that, yeah. terrible punting. But when you have a, a first quarter Daryl Jackson touchdown, called back as of a push off, then Ben Roethlisberger uh, QB sneak touchdown, which he went on Letterman the next day and said that wasn't a touchdown. Then there was right. the, um, the t- uh, pass to Jeremy <laughs> Stevens to the one yard line. They said, uh, um, it was like holding on the offense or something like that, and they did like a, re- a replay of that, and it was like it was like actually like offsides in the defense. Then the next play, Hasselbeck gets picked off, and this is the most egregious because it was you couldn't even like argue one way or the other. So Hasselbeck gets picked off, so therefore now he's on defense trying to tackle the guy who uh, who uh, caught the interception, and he tackles the guy. They call chop block on the offense. You can't call. He's on defense essentially because he threw the interception. That's not a, a, a questionable call. That's just completely wrong call. Like you, you can't have a chop block when you're essentially playing on defense trying to tackle a guy. That makes no sense. So I always say, if you want to find out if a Seattle fan is a you know Johnny Come Lately fan who just all of a sudden you know they've been pretty damn good the last decade, or if they're a real Seahawks fan, 
You ask them what they think about Bill Levy, the referee of that Super Bowl. And if they don't know who Bill Levy is, they're not a real Seahawks fan. Because a real Seahawks fan absolutely despises him and has the utmost vitriol, good word, for that guy. Because, like you said, Pittsburgh had some great plays and Seattle was bad. There's no question. I'm not saying it was just the referees. That would be a false narrative to say it was only that. It wasn't just that. But... A lot of those calls impacted that game. So as you can no tell, doubt. 15 years later, I'm still very, 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 very bitter about that game. More so bitter than the uh, the Super Bowl to the Patriots, maybe because Seattle had won the year before. Understood. Understood. Now, I will say this. When the Steelers lost Super Bowl 30, I feel to this day the same way that they should have won that game. Right? That was against Dallas. Um, you know, it was 10-7 at halftime for Dallas. Uh, but I thought Pittsburgh was the better team from the second quarter on. And Neil O'Donnell threw two terrible picks. Whether they were his faults or the receivers' faults, it doesn't matter. Um, you know, there were some there were some things that bothered me from that game of fourth and one where they Pittsburgh couldn't capitalize. So I, I kind of, in a way, understand your feeling about Super Bowl Forty that loss. It's funny, isn't it? Because if you talk to the athletes, they always tell you it's not the wins that they remember; mm-hmm. it's the losses that bother them more. Mm-hmm. And we're sounding like athletes, aren't we? <laughs> well, I mean, we are peak trained athletes. Clearly, I mean, I, I do a yeah. podcast. That, that that's athletic, isn't it? That's right there, exactly. Absolutely, hitting those buttons and talking into a mic is very athletic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, the, the losses are, are more, certainly more painful than the wins because uh, I, I still remember when Seattle did crush the the Broncos to win that Super Bowl. Uh, 43 to 8. Uh, a lot of fans were like, oh, what a terrible game. What's not good? Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, honestly, I don't give a crap about your opinion. That was the greatest game of all time for me. That's and it was right. so funny. Absolutely. In that fourth quarter, I was coaching myself not to get excited because everyone, you know, was, I was all text from people, oh, well, we know you've been a lifelong fan. Congrats. And I was like, shut up, shut up, shut up. Because I had the Leafs lost to Boston, speaking of them, in my head where they were up 4 uh, 1 in the third period in game seven a couple years before that. So in my head, I'm like, I am not saying this game is over until it is because that would have even, obviously, if any quarterback could come back, it would have been Peyton Manning. So it was just funny sure. how it, that fourth quarter, as the minutes, uh, you know, ticked, uh, went on. I was like trying to coach myself not to get excited, and then finally it was like, "Holy crap! This is actually <laughs> this is actually happening." It was it was pretty crazy. Nice, very nice. Yeah. It's funny. Um, I was on a cruise ship when the Steelers played uh, Super Bowl Forty Three, so I watched the game on the big screen out on the deck, and that was so much fun because there were a lot of Steelers fans watching the game, and it was an emotional game. They had the Harrison long touchdown return. You had the Fitzgerald gives uh, the, the the lead to the Cardinals. And then, of course, the Santonio Holmes catch, which I still thought he didn't have both toes in, but I guess he did. So, yeah, I, I you know, as a football fan, I've been really lucky. So my question to you mm-hmm. is how did you become a Seahawks fan? I think uh, a lot of it was uh, I remember uh, in the mid-'90s uh, being a fan of the Seattle Supersonics. Uh, I had a sweet course, old school yeah. hat. Uh, I think it was because I didn't, for some reason, I didn't want Michael Jordan to win. I definitely didn't like athletes or teams that would win all the time. I was always an underdog guy. So uh, I okay. picked Seattle Supersonics, and then the first Super Bowl I ever saw was Denver-Green Bay with Mike Holmgren as a coach of Green Bay, and then he mm-hmm. went to Seattle, and I was like, you know what? I don't have a team at all. I don't exactly know why it happened, really, but I was like, oh, this team is average every single year. Nobody else likes them. I don't want to pick a team at, like, you know, Green Bay or Denver, everybody else Dallas, everybody else loves. So I picked them, and I think it's because of the Seattle Supersonics connection that kind of was, like, gravitated to the Seahawks. And it's funny, because they were a very average team, I only got to see, like, one game a year. And you'd think I would have picked a team like Buffalo, who was always on TV. Thank goodness I didn't do that. 
So I would just mm. listen to radio mm. games for like three, four years uh, on the internet uh, for the Seattle games. Uh, and I remember telling people, the Seahawks will be in the Super Bowl in four years. And they were like, in high school, they were like, you're an idiot, no chance, they're terrible, they've never been anything, blah, 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 blah. I said, they have these amazing two offensive linemen and Walter Jones and Steve Hutchinson. They're going to get yep. there in four years. I remember writing a, a module about it on, in my um, uh, com tech uh, communications tech class. And, I, and, the, and the story was that the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. And this teacher thought I plagiarized the story. And I was like, no, they've never won the Super Bowl before. What are you talking about? I did not plagiarize the story. So I was like all in. And then I, I was almost like, I want to prove that I'm right. You guys are wrong. So it just became bigger and bigger that I liked Seattle. Turns out I was exactly right. And that was that Super Bowl I'm referring to against Pittsburgh. They ended up losing. And, uh, and then I was able to watch these games on TV when I went to college. First year, I got the NFL package. It was like, oh, my God, I could actually watch these games now. And so nice. I think I haven't missed a game of theirs for the last uh, 17, 18 years. Not one game I've missed. And Have uh, you been to Seattle for a game? Never, no. I went to the, oh, okay. uh, speaking of the uh, Bills and Toronto series, I did go to the Seattle-Buffalo game uh, where they just absolutely crushed Buffalo. It might have been 2010 or 2011, whenever, somewhere around, around then. And, nice. uh, and it, Seattle was up by like four touchdowns in the fourth quarter, and they did a fake punt, which was just <laughs> the funniest. It made no sense at all. Like, what are you doing? Why, why are you using your time to do a fake punt then when you're way ahead? But uh, And now obviously I pissed off fans. But, but yeah, never been to Seattle. I, I think it would be obviously amazing and just hopefully – yeah, it's just so that's so expensive to get out there, you know. I, I actually love yeah. NFL, but I actually like the NFL viewing experience on TV much better. Well, I, th- I think that's a concern for the league going forward, right? You know, because I think you're not alone in that feeling. I'll get you out of here on a, a couple of quick things here. Uh, I said mm-hmm. uh, you did cover golf uh, events. What uh, what uh, did you th- did you do in your career? A couple of majors or what were there? Canadian Opens? Maybe? Oh no, no, I, I just covered a couple of Canadian Opens. Nice. Um, I remember the one year. <laughs> uh, I forget what year. Oh six, maybe. Um, VJ Singh was among the leaderboard, and VJ was a difficult guy to interview. Yeah, he just didn't like being interviewed. And hey, listen golfers it's a tough life i get it so i asked the pr guy for the golf for that for the tournament if we can get vj and he looked at me and says geez tony my record's not good i'm three and 15 <laughs> i said okay fine so we asked vj vj did it shockingly and he was okay i remember the pr guy goes tony i'm four for 15 now thanks <laughs> so he was happy but yeah i mean uh, unfortunately i never got to do never got to see tiger woods but there's nothing better than going to a pro golf event and just finding a hole and watching these guys tee off. Like you realize how good they are and how bad you are. <laughs> like it's, it is amazing how, and you know, you see how much more difficult the courses are compared to what you play. Um, and it's it just, it's an eye opener to see how good the PGA golfers are. That's why they're the pros. And they do this, you know, every weekend or it seems like every weekend, and they do it four days in a row. I mean, that's um, that's tough, man, because it's such a mental game. Absolutely, definitely. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I've actually never been to a, a PGA Tour event, shockingly enough. I know that's weird. Uh, hmm. I remember volunteering for TSN for the LPGA in 2005 before I actually got into TSN in 06. Uh, so that was nice. pretty cool. Uh, but I did see uh, at Thundering Waters Golf Course in Niagara, my boy John Daly, I, I won some auction to be able to see him, meet and greet, and all that nice. stuff, which was cool. Yes. And so it was four holes uh, that he played. It was like a skins game with uh, Dan Girardi of the Rangers at the time. I and remember that. Yeah. I can't remember who the who, so there was someone else. And then there was Phil Kessel as well. 
And my buddy's huh. dad was like, hey, uh, Phil Kessel. Like, he was like, you know, just trying to talk to him or whatever. And then he's like, hey, this guy works in the media, like pointing to me. And I'm sure Kessel, especially at the time, was like, oh, God, I want to talk to media. So, but it was uh, Kessel <laughs> and Daly. And, and, and as you said, it was incredible to see John, um, you know, just hit, you know, lightning strikes to like three feet of the, of, of the pin. It was so cool yeah. to see him. And then, and then the uh, club us afterwards, again, my buddy's dad was like, hey, Mr. Daly, uh, what uh, short should uh, Michael buy? Because uh, obviously the sweet, loudmouth pants. And Daly was, you know, said a few things and whatever, whatever. I'm sure he gets lots of people asking him stuff. So before we leave, I go to the washroom. And I'm just, I'm in there and they're alone. All of a sudden I look to my left. And all of a sudden John Daly has come up <laughs> to, the, to, to the stall or to the uh, urinal beside me. I'm like, holy nice. crap, this is amazing, right? <laughs> Obviously I'm not going to be like, hey, <laughs> shake his hand or whatever, right? Because I'd already talked to him earlier. But, uh, but this is when he was off the sauce. So he wasn't drinking uh, any alcohol. But he, in those four holes, probably buried 12 Diet Cokes, I want to say. Like, he just oh crushed God. these Diet Cokes because <laughs> obviously that was his vice instead of drinking alcohol, right? And right. so Daly's beside me. All of a sudden, I'm like, holy crap, this is amazing. Daly's taking a piss beside me. All of a sudden, <laughs> he's just like, oh. <laughs> was his reaction? <laughs> 12 Diet Cokes in four holes, man. What are you doing? It was just oh, the that's funniest awesome. thing. I'm like... My God, Daly, you know, this is the great, you know, greatest thing and obviously it's the best. So, yeah, I haven't been to a PJ Tour event, but I got to see my boy and I, and I did have a meet and greet with him. And I talked to him, to him about football, I think, because I always feel if you're with people and, you know, they're, they're in their respective sport or I've, I've met a few people from reality shows, obviously people want to talk to you about what you're known for. So I figured... I did the same thing for the reality show guy. Uh, he was a big NFL guy, so I talked to him about, about football as well. I was like, I feel, I, I want to think that they would appreciate that because it's someone doing something that's different th than the norm. Uh, so I just yeah. talked to Daly about the Dallas Cowboys because he, he likes them. And uh, it was just, uh, it was so so cool to meet him, obviously. And I was like, this is nice. What, a, what an absolute beauty. I'd love to go golfing with him right now. That's fantastic. Yeah, that'd be so, so wonderful. Good. Yeah, uh, well, I'll get you, I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, the Bachelorette uh, series is just uh, premiering uh, this week. You know, with Katie Thurston, she's Thurston trapping people. I know you're a massive fan. Give me the breakdown, yeah. Tony, on what you think is going to happen this season. I haven't seen a second of the Bachelor or the Bachelorette <laughs> since the series started, so I am the wrong guy to ask. I'm sorry, <laughs> eight down. I do not watch the bachelor or the bachelorette. What's that? I had a feeling. That's why I asked the question. What, uh, what's the reason? <laughs> why did you watch the first season and then not, not carry on with it? I never, who said I, who said I watched the first season? Oh, I thought you I said, I, I thought you said I hadn't seen a second since the, the, the first season oh, or something like that. You know, no, I, I've, I've never listen. seen any of it. Oh, well, sorry. Why not? I've never seen a sec. It just, it doesn't interest me. Wow. I must've, you know, wrong. you know what it is. I'm just not interested in that. Plus I don't like, seeing people upset Aww. it makes me upset so when you watch the show you especially with the um with the bastard all these all these young ladies being upset that breaks my heart h-town <laughs> it's tough for me to watch so I, I just don't watch it i'm not like you and my boy scully big time bachelor and bachelorette fanatics well yeah it's that's not a, for me I mean, scully and i speaking to him yeah we restarted uh the bro ceremony podcast on youtube talking about i heard the about bachelor, this yes. and uh, yeah we've started that now that the season has started again and you said uh, you call me h-town and mike during this i also have to say the one time you accidentally called me hambone previous podcast guest oh, uh, i do remember that yes 
<laughs> I've that's apologized profusely for that. Sorry, yeah, man. Yeah, that's, that's why I go H Town usually. Mm, yeah, I know. I know. That really. Speaking of upsetting people, that really, really upset me, and I'm not over it. As I, you can tell, I you know? apologize. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all good. Well, that, Tony, this has been an absolute blast doing this. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time, and uh, yeah, it's been amazing stories. That Yarmir Yager story is absolutely legendary. I was not expecting that. <laughs> Unbelievable story. <laughs> I'm glad I'm glad you enjoy that, buddy. Anytime. Thank yeah. you for having me. What an absolute beauty Tony Ambrosio is. He's such an incredible storyteller. As I mentioned, I especially loved the Yarmar Yager tale and also meeting Dan Marino and some of his hilarious or frustrating moments in broadcasting, like when he interviewed Sam Mitchell. I appreciate that even as a Steelers fan, he understands how the Seahawks got absolutely screwed over in that Super Bowl in 2006. And that's not just me saying that. As a clearly bitter Seattle fan, everyone who watched that game knows and most Steelers fans, they get their backs up when called out, but he knows the truth. Again, a true Seahawks fan absolutely loathes referee Bill Levy, and that's how you know if they're real or not. I love that I got to say a few stories that I haven't previously brought up on this podcast about the awful interview in college with the wine guy and also meeting my idol John Daly, total Butron for sure. You can follow Tony on social media at Tony underscore Ambrosio on Twitter and the same handle on Instagram, but without the underscore. Thank you for listening to episode 66 of the H-Dog Pod. Man. This has been the H-Dog Pod with your host, Michael the Hound Dog Harrison. Mm, bang. Mm, bang. Mm, bang. Mm, bang. Mm, bang. Bing. Okay, now, well. <laughs> oh, man. I haven't had a blooper on an intro in a long time. Oh, boy. What a start. <clears throat> All right. Take two on that. <laughs>